this morning we're continuing in our Rolling Stone series, and it's been a great series so far. I hope God has really spoken to you and challenged you and encouraged you. Over the last couple of weeks, Alex has shared with us how God has created victory for us out of the tomb of depression. Those of us that struggle sometimes with anxiety and struggle with just finding our, our sense of self, there is hope and there's victory in the empty tomb. And we talked about last week the tomb of financial bondage, that there is a place where we get trapped in our own desires and in our own needs and our own wants. And what we need to do is just really present everything that we have to God, just bring it all to him, no matter what it is, no matter what it looks like to us, no matter what the world would say about it, we just bring it all to him and he does something amazing. He does something beautiful in us, something that we couldn't even imagine. And in so, we walk out of that old death into the new life that God has created for us. We're talking about victory in this series, aren't we? We're talking about living the abundant life, the full life that Jesus came and died and rose again for us to have. But here's the truth. There really is only one tomb. We don't want you to get the impression that there's this tomb and this tomb and this tomb and this tomb and that you have to keep coming out of different tombs. There's only one tomb, and Jesus conquered the power of sin and death in its entirety. And he invites us to participate in the new resurrection life that he lives. And so the, probably the most important takeaway in this whole series is this. Experiencing the reality of the new creation is not a question of us trying harder. Let me say that again. Experiencing the reality of the new creation is not a question of us trying harder, but rather us trusting Christ more completely. See, so often we think we have to work it up. So often we think any progress in our lives is the product of our own hard effort. But that's not the way it is. Everything that you will ever need, everything that your heart could ever desire, a loving, generous Father God has already provided to us. All we have to do is embrace it and live in it. That's why Paul would write scriptures like this. That's why he would say, I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. Or how about this? I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. Or this, the Spirit of God who raised Christ from the dead lives in you. And just as God raised Jesus Christ from the dead, he will give life to your mortal bodies by the same spirit living within you. This is good news. I went to the Mercy Me concert last night, and they have a song that says, this isn't just good news, it's the best news ever. This is the best news you're ever going to receive in your life. Resurrection life is a gift of grace from God our Father, attained by faith in Jesus Christ and empowered by the Holy Spirit. He rolls away the stone. 
We don't roll away the stone. He rolls away the stone, and he calls us forth, just like he did his friend Lazarus. Lazarus, come out. He's saying to you and me this morning, come out. And we walk out of that tomb into a changed life. Amen. I know it's hard to get excited. You know what they say, April showers bring May showers. <laughs> but today we're going to go on and we're going to look at the truth and apply this truth to what I call the tomb of isolation. That resonate with anybody? The tomb of isolation. In the Dallas Morning newspaper on April 12th of last year, Michael Hendricks wrote this. He said, America is increasingly a lonely nation. The proportion of American adults who say they are lonely has increased from 20% to 40% since the 1980s. Roughly 43 million adults over the age of 45 are estimated to suffer from chronic loneliness. The unmarried and the uncommitted to community report higher rates of loneliness with the casualty likely being a two-way street. Prosperity has afforded our independence from neighbors and networks, but the relational and emotional collateral damage has fallen hardest on those who are least able to afford it. We have an epidemic of isolation in our culture. Sociologists now speak of what's called hyper-individualism, and they Define it this way, hyper-individualism is a tendency for people to act in a highly individual way without regards to society. So in other words, it's all about me, what I want, what I'm going to do, how I'm going to spend my time, my money, my efforts, without ever thinking of how it impacts anyone else. And so Yuval Levine, who is the editor of the National Affairs says this, he says, we have set loose a scourge of loneliness and isolation that we are still afraid to acknowledge as the distinct social dysfunction of our age of individualism. You agree with them? A scourge of loneliness and isolation that is the distinct social dysfunction of our age of individualism. It's ironic, isn't it? In an age of great technological connectivity, we all carry around little things that can get us anywhere we want to be in the World Wide Web, can text anyone, can email anyone. You'd think we'd be the least isolated, but in fact, exactly the opposite is happening. So the question that we have to ask is why? Why are we so isolated? Well, see, I believe individualism is actually the product of fear. We prefer to disconnect ourselves and to isolate ourselves rather than take risks. And what kind of risks? Well, I think there's the risk of failing to meet the expectations of others. I think there's the risk of not getting our needs met when other people fail or fall short of meeting our expectations. I think there's the risk of vulnerability, of exposing ourselves to other people. I think there's the risk of the pain of self-sacrifice for the sake of love. 
giving ourselves away without hoping to get something in response. And because we're afraid to take these risks, we fall in to a sense of fear that keeps us locked up in our own little world. We think we're protecting ourselves, but we're actually cutting ourselves off from the very thing we most need, which is each other. And to me, that's what makes the cross of Jesus so meaningful. He shows us that the only path to new life is actually through death. The only path to resurrection comes after crucifixion. And it's the cross where God's perfect love drives out all of these things that we fear. It's the cross that leads us the way. So let's reflect on the cross for a minute. You know, a lot of times in liturgical churches, they'll have a service around Good Friday called the seven last sayings of Jesus, the seven last phrases of Jesus on the cross. And you know most of these by heart. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Today you will be with me in paradise. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I thirst. Into your hands I commend my spirit. It is finished. All of those very deep in theological meaning, aren't they? Okay, who was paying attention? That was only six. The seventh doesn't quite seem to fit sometimes. It doesn't seem to jump out at us with exactly the same theological impact. The seventh saying is this, found in the Gospel of John, chapter 19, verses 26 and 27. Jesus hanging on the cross. Picture this. When Jesus saw his mother standing there beside the disciple he loved, he said to her, Dear woman, here is your son. And he said to this disciple, here is your mother. And from then on, this disciple took her into his home. Not exactly what you'd expect from a man totally broken, totally beaten, right at death's door. In such pain and agony, you'd wonder how he could even think of anybody else. But wait a minute. Hold on a second. John still had a mother. And Mary still had other sons. So what is Jesus saying? Jesus here is redefining family within the context of Christian community. In other words, in Christ, we all become responsible for one another. That's part of that whole perfectly you prayer of unity that Jesus prayed, the one that we've set our course for as a church this year, that we would be perfectly one. Because here's the second takeaway I want you to get today. We thrive as God's people when we recognize one another's worth promote one another's welfare, and inspire one another's giftedness. We thrive when we are a community. This is why the New Testament, time and time again, puts so much emphasis on the word together. 
you're bored sometimes, just flip through the pages of the New Testament and count together. Or cheat and go to a concordance. But look at it. It's all there. It's fact why Acts chapter 2 describes that dynamic early church as being, quote, devoted to fellowship. And that's the Greek word koinonia, as I'm sure you've heard if you've been in church long enough. They had koinonia. They had fellowship. And you know why that's important? Because fellowship is, in fact, the remedy for isolation. Last Saturday night, I went to my 40th high school reunion. I know you don't look like 40. Somebody say that. I need encouragement. <laughs> but, you know, I, for about a week or so in advance, I was really thinking, like, what, what's this going to be like? Because I'm not one of those people that has stayed in contact with my friends from high school. Every season of my life as I move on, I just tend to kind of leave that group behind and pick up a new group. And so I'm like, well... You know, what's it going to be like, and is it going to be uncomfortable? You know, there were certain people that I obviously hung around with, others that I didn't even know were in my high school class, and so I was a little bit apprehensive going. But I was amazed how, as that evening unfolded, there was just like this instant connection, or, or rather reconnection, this sense of community. And so for about a week afterwards, I've been pondering why is that? Why could I walk into a situation that I haven't been involved in in 40 years and feel connected, feel fellowship with these people? And I really began to take this before God, and I, I think he began to show me some things that are important to us to understand what fellowship and community really are all about. He said, first of all, there's a shared identity we, no matter where we are, how old we get, how far we disperse, we will always be the John Carroll class of 1979. Nobody can take that away from us. Nothing can change that. But then there's also the shared experiences. When you spend 180 school days together with people for four straight years, and if you went to middle school and elementary school together before that, you've invested a lot of time with these people. Not to mention all the extracurricular activities that you engaged in, some of which the school actually sanctioned and <laughs> some of them not. So those were two very important elements, but there's a third one. And the third one was the fact that we actually had the shared stories. In other words, we got together and for six hours last Saturday night, we spent time reminiscing with each other. And we spent time learning about the ones that perhaps we weren't that close with in high school and what's going on over the course of 40 years. You know what we were doing? We were being present to each other. And within those things, the shared identity and the shared experiences and the shared stories, God was showing me that that's what fellowship is. That's what it means to be a community. That's what you have in common. Fellowship, community is built on the practice of being present to one another. And creating that place of presence is actually the art of what we call hospitality, or rather what the Bible calls hospitality, because we call hospitality putting on a spread in our home, 
imitating whatever that woman's name is down in Waco. What's her name? Gaines. That's right. We think if we can match her, or it used to be Martha Stewart 20 years ago, and it was probably somebody else 20 years before that. We think that's hospitality, and that's, that's really nice, and I'm really grateful when people invite me to their home and they've prepared a nice meal or whatever, but that's not what the Bible's talking about when it talks about hospitality. It's talking about something so much deeper. See, the word hospitality in Scripture is actually the Greek word philoxenia, which literally means love of strangers. Philoxenia, love of strangers. And hospitality, biblical hospitality, Christian hospitality, is displayed through three things that I want to talk about this morning. The open home, the open hand, and the open heart. And I want to show you, I want to walk with you through three scriptural examples today who all happen to be ladies in honor of Mother's Day. It's not that there aren't hospitable men in the Bible, but these three I think are special. The first is an unnamed woman. We don't even know her name. We just know that she was from the town of Shunem. We're going to look at a woman named Abigail and a woman named Lydia, okay? Still with me? Okay. And what I want you to notice as we look through these three examples is how the practice of hospitality makes space for God make space for God to come in and work in the lives of both those who open their homes, their hands, and their hearts, as well as those who are on the receiving end of that hospitality. Because here's the thing. Hebrews 13.2 says this, Don't forget to show hospitality to strangers, for some who have done this have entertained angels without realizing it. Now, I know you've probably heard that verse talked about as God's actual angel showing up and like helping somebody change a tire on the side of the road and all of that, and I believe that happens. But I believe there's more to this verse than that. I believe what it's saying is that we actually become angels, because angels really means messenger of God. We become like angels, however you want to say it, when we open our hearts, our hands, and our homes to these things. God uses us. God uses other people when we're willing to show and invest in this kind of hospitality. So you can go be an angel. Let's take a look. Open home. In 2 Kings chapter 4, there's a woman, unnamed, beginning at verse 8. It says this. One day, Elisha went to the town of Shunem. A wealthy woman lived there. And she urged him to come home for a meal. After that, whenever he passed that way, he would stop there for something to eat. We can all do that, right? Have you ever opened your home to somebody? Of course we have. She said to her husband, listen to this in verse 9, I am sure this man who stops in from time to time is a holy man of God. Let's build a small room for him on the roof and furnish it with a bed, a table, a chair, and a lamp, and then he will have a place to stay when he comes by. Now you're pushing it. It's one thing to invite you for a meal. It's another thing to renovate your whole home. But she senses something. Why does she do it? Because she senses something of God at work 
in this stranger. One day, Elisha returned to Shunem, and he went to this upper room to rest. And he said to his servant Gehazi, tell the woman from Shunem, I want to speak to her. And when she appeared, Elisha said to Gehazi, tell her, we appreciate the kind concern you have shown us. What can we do for you? Can we put in a good word for you to the king or to the commander of the army? No, she replied, my family takes good care of me. And later Elisha asked Gehazi, what can we do for her? And Gehazi replied, she doesn't have a son, and her husband is an old man. Ah, the wheels are beginning to turn. This is a stigma to this woman in this culture. So Gehazi's beginning to think God thoughts here. And Elisha's beginning to pick him up. So call her back again, Elisha said to him. And when the woman returned, Elisha said to her as she stood in the doorway, Next year, at this time, you will be holding a son in your arms. In other words, God is going to do a miracle for you. Because you opened your home, because you set a meal before us, because you renovated the guest room, God is going to answer the deepest cry of your heart. No, my Lord. Oh, man of God, don't deceive me and get my hopes up like that. But sure enough, it says, the woman soon became pregnant, and at that time, the following year, she had a son, just as Elisha had said. We don't have time to go deeper into the story, but there's two later incidences that deserve our recognition. First is, she has this son, and then the son dies. Oh my gosh. How cruel is that? Where is God in that? Well, the woman's a woman of faith. She was a woman in faith to set the table. She was a woman of faith to change the room out for the prophet. She's not going to let a little thing like death steal her miracle. So she sets off after Elisha, goes and tells him what's happened, well, he sends the servant. He says, I'm not dealing with the servant. Get out of the way. I'm going right to the man of God. And it's interesting because Scripture says that God kept it from Elisha. He didn't tell the prophet what was going on, what was stirring in this woman's heart, what was upsetting her. So he has to physically go himself, and he goes into the room eventually in which they've laid the child on the bed, and he places himself on top of the bed, and life from the tomb, from death, comes pouring back into that child. Life from death. New resurrection life. Later on, Elisha prophesies that there's a famine coming to the country. And he tells the woman to go to another country to protect her. And so she does. She goes to live in the land of the Philistines for seven years. And then as we jump back over to 2 Kings 8, at verse 3, we pick up the story. It says, after the famine ended, she returned from the land of the Philistines, and she went to see the king about getting back her house and her land. And as she came in, the king was talking with Gehazi, the servant of the man of God. And the king had just said, 
tell me some stories about the great things Elisha has done. And Gehazi was telling the king about the time Elisha had brought the boy back to life. Wow, coincidences, huh? At that very moment, it says, the mother of the boy walked in to make her appeal to the king about her house and her land. Look, my lord the king, Gehazi exclaimed. There's the woman now, and this is her son, the very one Elisha brought back to life. Is this true? The king asked her. And she told him the story. And so he directed one of his officials to see that everything she had lost was restored to her, including the value of any crops that had been harvested during her absence. That, my friends, is the favor of God. The favor of God. By simply opening her home to Elisha, this woman gave God room to show her favor in his eyes and in the eyes of the king. An open home. Let's look at an open hand. We find the story of Abigail over in 1 Samuel chapter 25. It says, There was a wealthy man from Maon, who owned property near the town of Carmel. He had 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats, and it was sheep-shearing time. This man's name was Nabal, and his wife Abigail was a sensible and beautiful woman. But Nabal, a descendant of Caleb, was crude and mean in all his dealings. When David heard that Nabal was shearing his sheep, he sent 10 of his young men to Carmel with this message for Nabal. Peace and prosperity to you, your family, and everything you own. I am told that it is sheep-sharing time. While your shepherds stayed among us near Carmel, we never harmed them, and nothing was ever stolen from them. Ask your own men, and they'll tell you that this is true. So would you be kind to us? Would you show us hospitality, he's saying? And they'll... Will you be kind to us since we've come at a time of celebration? Please share any provisions that you might have on hand with us and with your friend David. And David's young men gave this message to Nabal in David's name, and they waited for a reply. <laughs> Who is this fellow David? Nabal sneered to his young men. Who does this son of Jesse think he is? There are lots of servants these days who run away from their masters. Should I take my bread and my water and my meat that I have slaughtered for my shearers and give it to a band of outlaws who come from who knows where? A lot of mys in there, isn't it? So David's young man returned and told him what Nabal had said. Uh-oh. Get your swords was David's reply as he strapped on his own. Then 400 men started off with David and 200 remained behind to guard the equipment. David is ticked off. David is out for revenge. This is not going to end well. Except, meanwhile, one of the servants, some wise young man, happened to go and tell Abigail that all of this just went down. And Abigail springs into action. 
At verse 18, it says, Abigail wasted no time. She quickly gathered 200 loaves of bread, two wineskins full of wine, five sheep that had been slaughtered, nearly a bushel of roasted grain, 100 clusters of raisins, and 200 fig cakes. She packed them on donkeys and said to her servants, Go on ahead, I'll follow you shortly. But she didn't tell her husband Nabal what she was doing. That'll preach right there, amen? As she's riding her donkey into a mountain ravine, she sees David and his men coming toward her. David had just been saying, listen to this, a lot of good it did me to help this fellow. We protected his flocks in the wilderness and nothing he owned was lost or stolen, but he has repaid me evil for good. May God strike me and kill me if even one man of his household is still alive tomorrow morning. Whew. Can't you just feel it? When Abigail saw David, she quickly got off her donkey and bowed low before him. She fell at his feet and said, I accept all blame in this matter, my Lord. Please listen to what I have to say. I know Nabal is a wicked and ill-tempered man. Please don't pay any attention to him. He is a fool, just as his name suggests. That's what it means in Hebrew. What were his parents thinking? <laughs> but I never even saw the young men you sent. Now, my Lord, as surely as the Lord lives and you yourself live, listen to this, since the Lord has kept you from murdering and taking vengeance into your own hands... Who kept it? Who did God use? Let all your enemies and those who try to harm you be as cursed as Nabal is. And here is a present that I, your servant, have brought to you and to your young men. See, she talks David to calm him down so that he doesn't do something rash that he will regret. In verse 32, it says, David replied to Abigail, Praise the Lord, the God of Israel, who has sent you to meet me today. Thank God for your good sense. Bless you for keeping me from murder and from carrying out vengeance with my own hands. For I swear by the Lord, the God of Israel, who has kept me from hurting you, that if you had not hurried out to meet me, not one of Nabal's men would still be alive tomorrow morning. And then David accepted her present and told her, Return home in peace. I have heard what you said. We will not kill your husband. And when Abigail arrived home, she found that Nabal was throwing a big party and was celebrating like a king. He was very drunk, so she didn't tell him anything about her meeting with David until the dawn of the next day. In the morning when Nabal was sober, his wife told him what had happened. Listen to this. And as a result, he had a stroke and lay paralyzed on his bed like a stone. 
About 10 days later, the Lord struck him and he died. And when David finds out he dies, you know what he does? He asks Abigail to marry him. <laughs> so here's your lesson. Because, because of the open hand of hospitality, she goes from being married to a fool to being married to a king. And David benefits too. David is persuaded not to act in a sinful manner that would damage his standing with God and with the people of God that he's eventually called to lead. Alex spoke last week about the importance of giving what we have, that it's not the quantity that matters the most. It's the generosity with which we present what we have that allows God to take it and bless it and use it far beyond what we can imagine he will do with it. That's what Abigail's done here. An open hand has completely changed her future and perhaps the future of the people of God. And then lastly, the open heart. A woman named Lydia, her story is found in Acts chapter 16, and there really is not a lot in the actual text, but there's a lot we can read into her story. Acts 16, beginning at verse 13, it says this. Paul is in the middle of his missionary journey, and he says, On the Sabbath we went a little way outside the city to a riverbank where we thought people would be meeting for prayer, and we sat down to speak with some women who had gathered there. One of them was Lydia from Thyatira, a merchant of expensive purple cloth. Let's stop there for a second. This is not in Thyatira. She is an immigrant to this area. She's not, from, she's not in her hometown. And being a merchant of purple cloth means she was a highly successful businesswoman, which is quite unusual for the culture as well. So she's a woman of some means. She's a woman of some status in a community, actually, as an immigrant. But notice it also says this. She's a woman who worshiped God, and as she listened to us, the Lord opened her heart, and she accepted what Paul was saying. And then she and her household were baptized, and she asked us to be her guests. If you agree that I'm a true believer in the Lord, she said, come and stay at my home. And she urged us until we all agreed. What's hard to pick up here by this translation is the fact that all of the language being used here to describe her and describe her actions are almost identical language to how the Bible describes the work of the Holy Spirit. She basically is being called or extending the invitation for Paul to come alongside the parakleo, which is what the Holy Spirit is called to do, to come alongside of us. And compelling, not just taking no for an answer, not just throwing out an invitation to be polite, but she actually compels them to come to the house. To be her guest means that's the actual word for abide. As Jesus told us, the Holy Spirit will abide in us. So there's a lot of beautiful, deep theology here. But what's really happening in a practical sense, this is a town that doesn't have a Jewish synagogue. We know that because they're down by the river. They're down by the river praying. 
<laughs> Couldn't resist. <laughs> and so there's not enough quorum. There's not enough Jewish people to have a synagogue in this area. And so what's happening here is she's saying, let my heart extend to my home and to my hand, and let's continue to meet together as the people of God in my house. So what's happening here really is the birth of the Philippian church is happening in this woman's home. Now, if you think about the Philippian church, when Paul writes the letter to the Philippians, it's probably the only epistle in the entire New Testament that's all full of joy, all full of positive statements. There's no criticism of that church. There's no challenge to them except to continue showing the love that they've already been showing. It's probably the best church mentioned in all of the Bible. And it starts because this woman recognizes that her heart has been changed by God and she opens her heart to the people of God and the church comes into being. See, Paul, as you know, is eventually imprisoned there in Philippi for preaching the gospel, but he's released when the authorities come to find out that he's a Roman citizen. And what does he do? He says, when Paul and Silas get let out of prison, they returned to the home of Lydia. That's the place they ran to. That's the place of safety. That's the place where the church was in fellowship and in community. There they met with the believers and encouraged them once more, and then they left town. Because of her open heart hospitality, the church in Philippi continues to grow, continues to meet, and becomes this beautiful expression of the body of Christ. In fact, in the letter to Philippi, Paul says this, for you are my joy. Beautiful. So here's the three points, or here's the point of these three examples, I should say. As we practice the hospitality of open home and open hand and open heart, we step out of the cold tomb of isolation into the warmth of Christian fellowship where Jesus is alive and he is present in all of our relationships. That's the new life that comes forward. That's the resurrection life that brings us out of the death of isolation and so the question for us today for contemplation is this. How is God challenging me to overcome individualism and practice the hospitality that makes space for him to work in my life and to create real community? And I want you to sit with that question for a minute. But I also want to be upfront with you and tell you that there's a cost, because there's always a cost. And not every preacher will always tell you there's a cost. So I'm going to tell you what the cost is. If you decide, if you feel you want to open your home, that requires the sacrifice of your privacy. Some of us love our privacy. Some of us make idols out of our privacy. But if you want to open your home, you will have to sacrifice your privacy. If you want to open your hand, that requires the sacrifice of your possessions. It can't be me, 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 my, 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 mine. We're not always ready to do that, are we? 
If you want to open your heart, that requires the sacrifice of your privilege. What do I mean by that? I mean the ability and the so-called right to be able to say that you get to do what you want to do, when you want to do it, how you want to do it. You can't be open to God and open to him doing things if you're still going to be Lord and Master. You have to lay down your privilege. Now, I know I've been preaching long enough to know that there's three responses in a crowd to a message like this. I know that one of those responses is complete disinterest. I know some people here are saying, will you please finish? I'm hungry and I want to go eat. There's no hard feelings. I've been there. I've, not, not to you, Pastor Alex, but I've been there in other sermons. That's okay. But another response, perhaps you're inspired to take a step in putting this kind of hospitality into practice. You're inspired by the idea of really becoming and experiencing true Christian community, true Christian fellowship. Or the third response would be, these words challenge you. It's not so much inspiration and ready to do something as much as it is you're recognizing and removing an obstacle to growth. So here's what I want to ask you to do as you think about that response this morning, what God is saying to you right now. I'm going to ask you to do something that some of you are going to find uncomfortable. But here's the thing. If we never step out of our comfort zones, how are we ever going to grow? And it's not going to be that uncomfortable for you anyway because we're kind of a smaller crowd today, and I think most of us know each other. But here's what I want you to do. I want you to look around the room, and I want you to find someone you don't know particularly well. And then I want you to get up, and I want you to introduce yourself if you don't know that person at all. And then I want the two of you to come together to the communion table in pairs because the communion table is the place of community. It is the place of fellowship. It's the place where we recall the death of Jesus Christ. And in that death, we recognize the death of isolation. And I want you to lift the tray and present it to the other person and then do it in reverse. And then that's not all. After you have served one another the bread and the juice, I want you to go to the whiteboard as we've done throughout this sermon series. And I want you to write one of these six words, home, hand, heart, If you feel God inspiring you, if you feel like you're ready to take the next step, pick the area that you think is the right one for you today. Or if you're feeling that challenge, that something's got a hold of you that you need to let go of, write privacy, possessions, or privilege. You got all that? I'm going to ask Raquel to come back up and just play quietly. Again, 
consider the question, how is God challenging me to overcome individualism and practice hospitality in order to make space for him to work in my life and create real community? Find someone and come to the table of the Lord. You can stay where you are if you're still chatting away. We're, we're going to close the service out for all you introverts amongst us this morning. I wish we bought like whiskey shots or something because, you know, you guys are like, like, <laughs> I had to talk to somebody else. I know the feeling. Don't worry. But what a great message and what, what a great exercise. And so this morning as we go today and we celebrate the rest of this Mother's Day, just think in your heart, what is God challenging me? Opening my heart, my home, my hand, or my heart. And respond to it this week. Maybe it means inviting someone over to your house. Maybe it's giving to someone something that you have or open up your heart. I know God's challenging me to open up my heart. Sometimes I can, you know, think about the privilege I have and not think about what others have. And so this morning, just let that challenge sit with you as you uh, just go out through the rest of this day and the rest of this week. Well, God bless you. We'll see you next week for the part five or part four, part five of the Rolling Stone series. Uh, enjoy the rain. Enjoy Mother's Day to all your mothers. Ladies, pick up one of your prayer journals on your way out. God bless you. Have a great week. We'll see you next week.